Hello everyone and welcome to the Biddle Radio podcast. Today with you is me, Palina, and Andrei Sobel, and our guest today is Ignacia Obapian. Uh, yeah, Andrei, can you share a little bit of context of our talk? Yeah, today we will talk about uh, uh, multi-party computation ceremony uh, for KZG commitments that we will use in Dunk Sharding. So everyone knows that Ethereum will have Dunk Sharding in the future and they will implement Protodon sharding in the near future. And uh, for these things, we need uh, multi-party computation for the KZG commitment. And all of these complex things we will ask, uh, uh, we'll ga- we will ask Ignacio. So, Ignacio, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, everything going fine. It's a pretty hot day here, so uh, dealing with that. Yeah, so uh, Ignacio, can you share us what is your expertise and what are the best questions to ask you today? Right, so um, I will consider myself an engineer and a cryptography enthusiast. So um, I'm actually someone that knows some stuff about cryptography, but I would call, wouldn't call me an expert on that. Uh, actually, it's really hard to call you an expert on anything here because there are so many things to learn and to be an expert. Um, but yeah, I would say that doing Web3 uh, engineering, uh, I've been working in this space for four years. Uh, so, but mostly in engineering front, some protocol development. Uh, and now I'm trying to dive deeper into applied cryptography stuff. Right. So, except for deep cryptography, is there anything else that is definitely not your expertise and we shouldn't touch upon today? Well, I wouldn't call me an expert on many things. Uh, probably coffee would be a good topic not to touch on. Um, <laughs> I don't have like a good taste for coffee. I just drink coffee because it's useful. So uh, I know there are a lot of coffee experts in this space, so I'm not one of them. <laughs> All right, nice. I'm also drinking tea today. Okay, so uh, yeah, let's start with like general context and uh, everything around uh, the ceremony. And the first one is, what is protodunk sharding and why do we need it? Protodunk sharding is a milestone in the Ethereum roadmap, uh, which is part of, let's say, a new vision for Ethereum, which is uh, to be a network uh, where uh, rollups are at the center of this stage. So it's like a rollup-centric uh, roadmap. And um, when you think about um, how rollups work, uh, there are a lot of things to understand, but one of them is that you need to solve uh, the data availability problem. So to give uh, some context, uh, rollups usually, uh, what if you want to explain with a few words, uh, they kind of batch transactions and uh, do the ABM execution of chain and calculate the new state routes. And what they do with Ethereum, which is the layer one, uh, they have to provide the data of that um, batch of transactions, and uh, they post the new state routes. So uh, under this new framework, the layer one isn't eagerly doing any kind of execution of those transactions. Um, So the validity of the execution is solved in different ways that kind of depends on which kind of rollup you are looking at. 
But uh, apart from verifying execution, as I mentioned, the other big problem to solve is how to make the data available. And um, okay, so why is that important? Like why we need to solve this data availability problem? So uh, like probably one of the easiest rollups to think about and to understand all these are optimistic rollups. Um, as a refresher, uh, optimistic rollups basically just post the batch of transactions and the new state route. And there's an expectation that somebody else is taking the same batch of transactions that are posted on chain and replay the execution locally. And they should check that the new state route is the same that the rollup has claimed. And that's how, uh, like the network keeps, uh, the rollup in check. Uh, if it's behaving correctly or is something hairy going on. Now, if you think about this, uh, some critical aspect is that the, the batch of transaction is available for others to replay the execution. If that isn't available, nobody can double check the rollup. And that's a big problem uh, because if that isn't the case, you are just like trusting uh, an external party and like a state of uh, the world out there uh, and that we don't want that. So proton and sharding is a middle, is a middle ground between what exists today, which is rollups posting data as full data and the full vision, which is full and sharding, which is like pretty complex. So proton and sharding is a, like a middle ground, uh, which has most of the cryptography part of the data availability solution in Ethereum, but still like strip off uh, other kind of really complex stuff. Um, so yeah, like in summary, Proton Sharding is a milestone where we start to get an initial solution for scaling Ethereum on a rollout centric vision. In the Proton Sharding, we have KZG commitment. It's the way how we commit the data to, to the like proto shards, let's call it proto shards. And my question will be why we need especially KZG commitment for it. Why we cannot use any other commitment for making the like commitment to the data. It's, we can imagine that it can be like Merkle tree or it can be Fry, not, not the KZG commitment. Why we especially use KZG commitment for it? Okay, so uh, maybe it's helpful to talk about what is KCG commitment uh, outside the context of uh, the proton sharding, uh, so to have some mental model to think about this stuff. Um, so KCG commitments is a type of polynomial commitment scheme, and that might sound a bit cryptic. Uh, so if you think about polynomial commitments, you have polynomials, which you might remember from high school, maybe. Uh, so polynomials are simply these things like one plus x plus three x squared plus four x cubed. So um, it's basically a function uh, depending on some number x and do you use some kind of linear combination of the powers of the number. Why, like, why polynomials are useful? Um, so polynomials are a really good way to uh, do some kind of compression of data. 
because polynomials have um, kind of encode patterns. Uh, but maybe we can get to that later. So polynomials are just like functions, uh, as you learn in high school, and commitment. And uh, in cryptography, a commitment is a is a way to have like a fingerprint of something. So maybe the easiest way to think about commitments is to think about hash functions. So let's say you have a long sentence or a paragraph or some long text, and you calculate the hash of that, and you get a shorter block of bytes. And this is usually useful because it has uh, usually two, two properties that you want. The first one is that if you change the original text by any means, like you change a single letter or something like that, uh, the, the hash function of that new text will be different from the one that you calculated before. And this process uh, is technically named uh, binding, so the, the commitment should be binding, uh, which means that uh, after you, let's say, after you share the commitment, you cannot really change the original value that you committed to because that's kind of uh, the reason that you are doing it. So that's kind of the binding property of commitments. There's also some other property called hiding that is maybe useful depending on the use case. And that's more related to the fact that even if I come, so let's say I'm, I'm committing to numbers between one and 1,000. So uh, I think of a random number and do the hash of that. And I share it with you. And if for whatever reason you happen to guess what number I committed to, um, you, um, if you come up with an, a, a pre-image of that hash that has the same hash value, um, you will you will know that that pre-image is the same that I um, selected as a random number. So if I select the number five and do the hash, and later for some reason you guess the number five and you did the hash and you got the same, you know that I selected that number. And that can be a bit problematic depending on the use case. Uh, there are some commitment schemes in which even if you come up with some, if you, even if you come up with the same hash, you cannot be sure that I selected that value. But uh, we can leave that aside because the hiding thing is not really that important for this context. The most important thing is this uh, kind of compression of committing to something and not being able to change that after the fact. So, uh, uh, that, that's kind of a big idea of polynomial commitments. So you have a polynomial and you would, you want to commit to it. And, um, to do that, um, you have like multiple cryptographic schemes. So we have these ECG commitments. You have uh, this fry, uh, you have other options, um, like pairs and hashes and in a product arguments. Um, but before diving into details, I think it's also interesting to notice something else. And uh, polynomial commitments try to achieve something more powerful than simply hashing something. And uh, it's this possibility of uh, generating a proof of an evaluation of that polynomial. So let's say that I, I have some polynomial, uh, whatever, 
and I calculate the commitment and I share it with you. And later you'll be interested in um, the evaluation of that polynomial at some point x equals 10. So you say, okay, Ignacio, let me, let me know the evaluation of your polynomial at point x equals 10. And I do the calculation because I have the polynomial and I say, okay, is the result is 20. And I tell you, okay, the result is 20. And you are a bit puzzled because the only thing that you have is this commitment because you don't know the polynomial. And you have my claim that that number, that the evaluation is 20. But you don't have like any upfront way to check that is true, right? So this polynomial commitment schemes allows me to generate also a proof that that claim is true. So uh, you can get, you can have this original commitment that I committed to for my polynomial and take this proof and actually do some computation on your side to verify that 20 is actually the result of that evaluation. That's a really powerful thing uh, because it's, it's kind of a more constrained uh, concept of snarks maybe um, because you are verifying some computation um, without having the original like full witness of the calculation um, but yeah um, that's kind of the, the 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 way you have to think about polynomial commitments you have a commitment you know it is binding so after somebody gave you the commitment you cannot really change the polynomial and you can ask for evaluations of that polynomial and get proofs and check that and be sure that's correct. Um, so that's uh, like a summary of polynomial commitments. So for a double check that you say that the, if you try to compare the possible way how we can commit something to the protodon sharding, if we try to compare it to the just simple hashing, uh, you try to say that uh, additionally to just compression of data, we can have the additional property of like snark friendliness. Let's call it snark friendliness that you can uh, just uh, prove uh, something additionally, not just the value, but some manipulation over this value. Am I right? Right. Yeah. 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 That's right. And uh, also, it has some implications on uh, like how big is the proof compared to simply building a Merkle tree. Um, in Merkle trees, you can only prove, um, uh, like members of like parts of this data that you committed, but there's no like additional structure, uh, created underneath that is useful for this, like, um, other kind of powerful, uh, evaluation proofs or something like that. To, to give a bit more context of why we are talking about polynomial commitments instead of Merkle trees for protodan sharding, uh, in the, in the dank sharding design, uh, polynomials are actually useful for the full dank sharding scheme because, uh, in full dank sharding, there's going to be something that is called data sampling. So uh, maybe it's useful to explain a bit uh, that. So in the full length sharding scheme, uh, users can submit this new kind of transaction, uh, which is a block carrying transaction. So you can 
post some blob to the chain. And the way this will work in the full length sharding scheme is that the, whenever like a new block is created and people or validators are doing attestations to that block, there's no there's no expectation that everybody's downloading all the data from uh, those blocks. But still, like you have a you have a scheme in which you have data that is committed to blocks, but you are not expecting everyone to download all the data. So you you have to come up with some kind of idea or solution on how this can be secure. Uh, because if you think about it, uh, whenever you um, let's say you have a file in your computer and that file is uh, one thousand bytes. Uh, usually, if you are missing just a single byte of those one thousand bytes, you can consider your file to be corrupted. So you have actually like no margin to really lose data. Um, so it sounds like if I'm like um, trying to only sample some parts of this data that is in blocks, how I can be sure that there's like no extra, like single byte uh, that is held by some malicious party to really um, corrupt everything. And uh, the way that this works is that Dan Sharding is planning to use something called erasure coding. And erasure coding is a way, uh, it's a pretty oldish idea uh, that is used a lot in backup systems and things like that. But the idea is that you have um, a chunk of data, let's say you have a file of one megabyte, and you can do some transformation, uh, let's say for that to be now two megabytes. And the trick is that now you only need one megabyte for from these two megabytes to really reconstruct the original file. And that's incredibly useful because now um, you you only need to find a way to uh, claim that at least half of the file it's available somehow. Uh, with that, you can reconstruct uh, the original uh, value. So hopefully that makes some sense. Let's get back to the QCG commitments now. So I know that QCG commitments require the trust to set up because right now is a process of the ceremony for the trust to set up. So why do QCG commitments need the trust to set up in the first place? Right, so in the polynomial commitments schemes, uh, you have QCG commitments and you have other options. And one of the properties that you uh, need to think about when selecting some of these options is like, what, what are the trade-offs? So when you think about polynomial commitments, you usually try to understand them in different buckets. Uh, one of the buckets can be how big is the commitment size? Uh, because if you are planning to post the commitment on chain, maybe having short commitments is important to you. So in that sense, PCG commitments are really great because uh, the commitments are really short. There are other polynomial commitment schemes where the commitment is uh, bigger. Um, another thing that you might think about when selecting a polynomial commitment is bigger the proofs these evaluations proofs that I mentioned before. Uh, so maybe you want that the proof is short or that maybe doesn't matter. 
Uh, also, you might want to know how fast the verifier can verify the proof. And one other um, important consideration is if the polynomial commitment needs a trusted setup, or uh, if this is also named if it is transparent or not transparent. So what, what does this mean? Every polynomial commitment that needs uh, a trusted setup, uh, the reason for that is because in the, in the cryptographic scheme description, there's an assumption that somehow, by some kind of magic uh, way, you got um, the, the encrypted powers of a number. History commitments don't really care how you got them, but you need some kind of uh, uh, an initial configuration to run the commitment scheme. History commitments does, doesn't really explain to you how to get these encrypted powers of a number. It's just assumed that you have them. And if you have them, uh, the, the scheme is secure and it's sound and everything will work fine. Uh, so KCC commitments have really great um, characteristics on this commitment size and the verification um, overhead. And it really excels in mostly every front. But you have this annoying like trusted setup in which somehow you need this magic uh, encrypted powers of a number, you have like, yeah, these kind of trade-offs. There are other polynomial commitment schemes which do not need this trusted setup, but they pay the cost in some other way, like with bigger proofs or verifying the proof is, takes more computation or generating the proof is harder. Um, so in the case of KCC commitments, uh, this trusted setup, uh, as I mentioned before, it's an assumption that you have, uh, so in, in the KCC commitments, you have polynomials. And if you think of polynomials, you have polynomials of different degrees. So the degree of a polynomial is the uh, maximum exponent of the uh, x variable. So if you have one plus x plus x squared, the degree of that polynomial is two. And you have like plus x cubed, that will be three, etc. So for KCC commitments to work, you need, um, somehow you need a number, let's call it a secret number, tau, which will be useful that name for later. So you need some number tau that nobody knows uh, what that number is, but you need uh, the kind of the encrypted version of tau uh, with all the powers up to the degree of your polynomial. So let's say that your polynomial has degree three. That means that you need the encrypted version of tau, tau square, and tau to the cube uh, power. So um, that's a bit weird because how you can come up with encrypted powers of a number that nobody knows. Um, that seems like a weird requirement. For that is uh, that we are doing this Ethereum ceremony, uh, which uh, is simply a protocol uh, that is called Powers of Tau. And it's like a procedure in which you can generate these encrypted powers of a number uh, in a way that um, you can expect 
this secret number cannot really be recordable or anyone knowing that number. So another way to solve this problem is to simply say, we will trust Ignacio to think of a number and he will generate the powers and he will encrypt that. And we will trust that he will delete that number from any, from everywhere. And um, he's like a good person, but the problem here is that if that number for whatever reason is leaked, uh, really bad things will happen. And like, you can do some, um, like you break the, the, the cryptography of the polynomial commitment. Yeah, so the idea of powers of Tau is to have something better than some simply trusting one person or a group of people doing the right thing. And the idea of powers of Tau is that you can uh, allow uh, multiple people to participate into this process of generating what you need in a way that if only one person from that group of people do the right thing, and we can explain what right thing is there, uh, then you have the guarantee that um, this secret number isn't leaked or it cannot be recovered. So let's say that 1,000 people participate in the ceremony. You only need that one person does the correct thing in order for everything to be sound. Yeah, so you uh, was one of the developers who developed the Go, Go client for this ceremony in Ethereum. So uh, my question is, uh, you mentioned 1,000 people who can participate to the ceremony. And I want to ask what's the limitation of the amount of people who can participate in the ceremony, how we can scale it, how many, how many people can be the part of the ceremony? Do we have some like bottleneck for it? Right, that's a really good question. Um, first, I want to clarify that um, I did an independent client of the ceremony. So there's like an official client, which is this one that you might know from Slack web-based. Uh, I think it's Um That client was created by the Ethereum Foundation. The, the code is open source and yeah, you can also check that. The Ethereum Foundation also uh, incentivizes people to create their own clients. And we can later talk about why that's useful. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say that like, I'm like an independent person out there that client created a client. Uh, um, it's like not really like an official one, despite that I've seen a lot of people using it, which was great. Regarding the, like, how to scale these kind of ceremonies and like how reasonable is to expect that many people to participate. So one of the fundamental, let's say, limitations of powers of Tau is that it's a sequential process. So what that means is that, um, let's say you have 1000 people that want to contribute. Um, in this, in this Ethereum setup, there's a single sequencer, which is coordinating who is participating and um, coordinating uh, like the protocol execution. And the problem here is that since the powers of Tau is sequential, the sequencer is only allowing a single person to contribute at the same time. And the contributions of these powers of Tau protocol that each participant has to run on their machines is 
uh, somewhat complex uh, calculations. So it involves uh, like elliptic curve cryptography. So uh, it, it is like quite heavy. The problem here is that uh, you have to, like the sequencer has to go through each one of these 1,000 participants one by one, giving them each enough time to do the calculation, to send that to the sequencer. The sequencer will verify that contribution and then give turns to the next person. So as you might imagine, any kind of sequential process is uh, a bit, um, yeah, problematic if you have a lot of people waiting to contribute and if that if and if every contribution takes let's say 10 or 15 seconds uh, if you have 1000 people and each turn it takes 15 seconds uh, yeah it, it is like a slow process and it's ux wise is pretty annoying too because you have to wait maybe a lot of time to participate so yeah, I think there are like some more advanced twists of the powers of tau protocol to allow like parallel execution of contributions, like um, or doing some kind of pipelining. But the Ethereum Foundation, I think that the logic was trying to come up with like a, a pretty simple powers of tau setup um, to make like. Uh, other people write clients without like messing with more complicated things. Uh, so yeah, I would say that the sequential nature of powers of tau might be uh, plus the, the heavy computation that each contribution uh, has to do uh, might be the most painful part of the story. Um, okay, so right now uh, today is eleventh February and it's about forty thousand people who contributed. Uh, to the ceremony. So I'm curious, uh, the ceremony will finish, I guess, in about 30 days from now. Uh, how do you think, once it finishes, do they just like cut all the people who are in line waiting? Or do they just like continue everyone who stayed, well, uh, contributed their randomness and append it to, uh, to, to the whole powers of Tau? Or do you just like, okay, it's finished. You're, everyone else is out. Uh, right, that's a really good question, like where is the finish line? Um, I think that a, a good way to think about this is to come up to the roots of when these powers of Tau protocol is safe. Uh, so if we remember what we said before, uh, the assumption of power of Tau to run correctly is at least one person from everyone has to do the right thing. And the right thing is basically that um, when you participate in the ceremony, you will generate a secret that is local to you, that you can generate whatever you want. And you do some computation and you give that to the sequencer. That's kind of how you contribute. But the important thing is that after you do the contribution, you have to destroy your secret. That's, that's what you need to do and that's what I call uh, doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is generating your secret, doing the contribution and destroying your secret. So if you think about it, like, uh, yeah, now there are like 30,000 participants. And what this means that is that we need only one person from these 30,000 to be, do the right thing. So it, it seems to be like a reasonable assumption um, that that is already true. Um, 
I think that also after this public uh, phase of the ceremony finishes, there's like another phase, and I think that they call uh, that special contributions, uh, because there are people that are planning to contribute from more esoteric places. Um, like some days ago, I, I got to talk with somebody, somebody that was planning to use my client in a satellite to do a contribution there, which sounds pretty interesting. So I think that they are there having like this extra time for these special contributions because maybe they have more constraints. Like you're going to expect to have maybe great internet connection of a satellite or the bathroom requirements are different. Um, but yeah, um, after that point, I guess, yeah, we will think that, uh, we have enough contributions. Um, we, I, I think that the main idea of the Ethereum foundation is that everybody that feels, um, everybody should feel like part of doing this for Ethereum. And uh, this is important for the future of Ethereum It's important for its future. Uh, security and uh, I think that also like community wise it's really nice to give people time uh, to participate uh, but yeah I think that we are already not, uh, on a number that is more than needed for like making this safe. Right I know that they do give out grants for all the different randomness sources I was really curious if they will like publish everyone who got the grant and what kind of thing they did regarding their randomness. I didn't find it just now, so I, I hope that they will publish it eventually. So a question is, like, in the client that you've implemented, where do you take the randomness from and entropy? Right. Yeah, that's a really good question because it's really related to the security of, like, the protocol. So in the case of my client, uh, I do what, uh, like, some reasonable I take some reasonable source of entropy, which is a cryptographic random number generator. So this is something that you can have on like most computers. Uh, it's something that you can get from the operating system. So it is basically a, a way of generating random numbers that are cryptographically secure. So my client takes as a basis that. Uh, so um, it's like a way that your machine can get randomness uh, uh, from, from the context. But also I added an extra feature, uh, which I knew it was going to be useful for these like more esoteric sources of entropy projects that people are thinking. And if you want, you can provide some extra flags to provide a URL for the client to pull randomness from an external source. Uh, I was inspired by this by talking with uh, Mario Havel, which is a person from the Ethereum Foundation, which was working on a really interesting way of generating entropy. Um, he was his, he, he worked on a, a little gadget that you can use with your cat. And depending on how the cat moves, that kind of captures that randomness, if you say, and um, make that available for some client to pull somehow. And I said, okay, so if you are only generating the entropy, 
it's really hard to like pipe that into the web client because the web client is simply not accepting like that kind of arbitrary sources of entropy. So that's why I say, okay, if I kind of make an extra feature in my client that uh, allows the user to give some whatever URL that they want, uh, the client also pulls randomness, randomness from there uh, when making the contribution and mixes up with this cryptographically secure random number generator. And with that, it generates the secret. And with that, that's the contribution and later delete that secret from memory. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, so I would say that my sources of entropy on this client are uh, the usual uh, cryptographic uh, random number generator and optionally uh, uh, this kind of arbitrary URL where you can pull randomness. Uh, as an extra need, I also added a third potential source of entropy which is pulling randomness from the DRAND network. So this, uh, there's like a blockchain out there, which is named DRAND, uh, which its main purpose is to generate entropy uh, that is cryptographically secure and biased and has all these really nice properties. Uh, because having randomness in, in blockchains is really useful and important for the safety of, of uh, many cryptographic schemes. So you will find this, how I can generate randomness safely everywhere uh, if you study in this space. So this uh, blockchain is, uh, yeah, main purpose is to generate randomness. So I also provide an extra flag in the client that if you, if you enable that, it will also query the latest randomness from this network and also include in the bag of entropy of the client to generate your secret. We know that it's not like, it's not like the first MPC ceremony in the blockchain. We know that before before the ceremony, we have the Zcash, few Zcash ceremony for generating trusted setup. We have Adstack ceremony for generating Plong uh, trusted setup. So my question is, uh, can we reuse for this ceremony some data that we already generate uh, for for example for the plong ceremony uh which made by ad stack because it's it's in some way it can be somehow uh, comp uh like uh, composable because uh, the plong use also kzg commitments so maybe we can like use the ad stack as starting point and uh, if we will uh, if we didn't use it as starting point for our ceremony why we didn't? That's an amazing question, and I think uh, it's not really well explained out there. So I'm not like an expert in other trusted setups. I, I haven't really participated, but the reason, uh, I think it, there are like two main reasons why reusing uh, other results of other trusted setups can be problematic. The, the first one is pretty straight, which is um, the trusted setup uh, has some assumptions regarding which elliptic curve is using for generating these encrypted powers of this number. So uh, first of all, if you if you are planning to reuse the result from other trusted setup, your elliptic curves that you're, you are going to be using in your system should be the same as the ones that were run in this other trusted setup. And in the case of Ethereum, it's using the BLS 12.3H 
create one curve. And um, that's not the same curve that is, was used for Zcash, I think, and Aztec. I think they are using BN uh, yeah, 284, I think. So uh, first of all, you need like the same elliptic curve. Another thing that you need is that um, each trusted setup uh, needs to generate these powers of the number up to some point. In the case of Ethereum, it's generating the powers up to 2 to the 12th power. Um, actually, actually, the Ethereum ceremony is not only one ceremony, it's actually four ceremonies uh, bundled together. So actually, when you are participating, you are participating and uh, generating uh, four different tau values, each of them to different powers. So the powers are 2 to the 12, 2 to the 13, 14, and 15. Uh, we can talk about why that's needed. Um, that's a pretty small setup compared to others. Uh, 2 to the 12, yeah, it's like a big number, but uh, like in relative terms, it's pretty small to, compared to others. And the reason for that is that these other trusted setups, such as Zcash and Aztec, um, they are generating this setup uh, because they need it for snarks. Snarks under the hood use polynomial commitments, so that's kind of the relationship, uh, at least like the modern ones. Like Plunk uses uh, polynomial commitments for older ones like growth system. Um, uh, the, the, the trusted setup is a bit different, but Usually the powers that you need for snarks are much more, like uh, you need like to the power of 10 or 100 million, which is way bigger than 2 to the 12, which is 4,000. So the, the problem uh, is that, like let's say that you are building some application that needs some snark, and then you need a trusted setup because you have a non-transparent snark, you cannot really use the the result of the Ethereum ceremony because you don't have enough powers for your use case. Um, so okay, so apart from these like details about the which is a elliptic curve uh, you are using, uh, if that's the same as the strategy setup, or if you have enough powers, I think there is like an, another dimension that you have to think about, and it's the trust assumption. So if, if, if we are in the Ethereum ceremony, uh, so we, we, before starting to run the ceremony, we think, okay, do we want to start from scratch? Or maybe we can leverage these other results that were generated before. Accepting, accept, uh, accepting some other trusted setup result is basically accepting that that protocol was run correctly. And you have to think about if that makes sense to you, uh, because you are kind of linking your security assumption of your network with other network security assumption. That's not usually a problem if you're planning to add more contributions to that initial setup. Uh, but you have to think about like if that's worth it, because it can complicate things. And if you end up having 30,000 contributions anyway, there's not like a big uh, gain from reusing some other um, like trusted setup result. So in summary, you have like other trusted setups and what changed from setup to setup is which elliptic curve you are using, 
how many powers of tau you are calculating. And um, yeah, this like one person out of n, being honest, assumption. Uh, so yeah, depending on that, maybe you can leverage others or not. Related to the uh, elliptic curve that Ethereum want to use, why Ethereum want to use BLS curve? Why uh, not something like from MNT4, MNT6 family, where you can simply, like, when you can simply uh, use uh, uh, this commitment in uh, recursive snarks, in the recursive plonk? Why not MNT4, MNT6 family? Do you know? Yeah, I think that's because um, the. So all this protodan sharding and that sharding is happening at the consensus layer of Ethereum. So the consensus layer client already were dealing with this uh, BLS curve for signatures, and they are doing like aggregation of signatures for when the merge happened. So it is really useful to keep using the same curve uh, to avoid like adding more curves to clients that the clients are already using. So. I think from that perspective is um, um, yeah useful. Uh, I, I'm not really sure if they have considered other cores, but I think that leaning into simplicity might be probably the the best argument. Um, the the only thing that you need for KCC commitments regarding the curve is that it's a pairing friendly curve because KCC commitments relies on pairings. Uh, so pairings is like an extra operation that you can do in some curves that is really useful uh, to check some things. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, the only requirement of QCC commitment is that you have an elliptic curve and it's pairing friendly, so you can use whatever you want. So in the case of Ethereum, I think it's just like leaning on, in, in a curve that was already used by the consensus clients. Uh, and yeah, that would make everything simpler. Getting back to uh, the tau numbers, uh, what are the sizes of blobs of data that you can now put into Ethereum and uh, how long will they store it after the hard fork happens, like once they uh, are added to the Ethereum? Um, so the idea is that when you post some data to uh, like there, there will be like a new transaction type where you can post data. Uh, it's like a block transaction type. And you might, you might think about, okay, so I have some chunk of data and how this kind of somehow transform into a polynomial. That doesn't sound like clear how that happens. The, the way that works is that you have like your blob of bytes and you have to interpret those bytes as numbers. So these numbers are uh, field elements of that elliptic curve that we talked before. So you're basically interpreting the, the blob, the blob of uh, bytes as yeah, chunks of bytes which you can interpret as numbers. And these numbers are you can think of them as coefficients of a polynomial. So basically, you have let's say the first 32 bytes. That's a number. You can see that as a number, and that's the first coefficient of your polynomial. The second 32 bytes is the second coefficient, and uh, you can go on with that. And that's kind of your polynomial, uh, and that's how you wire 
a blob of data with a polynomial and do the rest of the PCG commitment. Uh, I actually lied a bit here because uh, you have like two ways of constructing this polynomial. You can think of, I will generate the coefficients of the polynomial and build the polynomial that way. But in practice, what Ethereum does in Proton sharding and sharding is uh, constructing this polynomial in evaluation form. Um, and what that means is simply defining the polynomial as um, if the polynomial is f, you define f of 0 equals that first number and f1 equals to that number. So instead of being the coefficients, that those numbers are the, are the evaluation of the polynomial at point 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. Uh, that is done for performance reasons. It's really useful to have polynomials in evaluation form to do some PCG things. Uh, but coming back to your question, so you have the blob of uh, data, you do this interpretation as a polynomial, and you do the PCG commitment part. So regarding sizes, um, these powers of tau, uh, I mentioned before that uh, were calculated up to 2 to the 12th power. And uh, what that means is that you can have up to 2 to the 12th chunks of your data. And each chunk has a defined size, which is the field element size, which I think is 32 uh, in BLS. So you have 32 times 2 to the 12th, um, and that's around 128 kilobytes. I think that's the first target of each blob of data, and I think each um, block can have up to, like there's like a target of eight blobs. Uh, so I think that you can post like the, the, the expected blob size for blob data is around one megabyte. That's kind of the product sharding target. The full length sharding is trying to push that uh, to be even more. But the problem there is that in product sharding, you are not doing this data sampling that I mentioned before. So uh, you cannot really keep, like all this data is, is still in, like, in the blog and everyone is downloading all the data. So you cannot like keep pushing more and more blob transactions because that would make really big blocks. And we know that really big blocks, blocks are like a big problem for uh, bandwidth in the network. Um, so it's kind of a middle ground that like you have some blobs uh, up to eight. I think that the target is eight and can go up to 12. Uh, but yeah, uh, it will be like in total, you can post around one megabyte of data. And do you know how long do Ethereum plan to store it? Or is there any uh, EIPs about that? I'm not sure that's decided, but I'm a, I might not be up to date with the spec. Um, I think it was like something like a year. So what this means is that validators after a year or whatever period of time, uh, they are allowed to delete these blobs from these previous blobs. And that's really like a really interesting thing because up to now every data in blog in blocks were ex we were expecting people to store that forever in a way, at least in archive notes, 
that's actually one of the biggest problems of Ethereum now. Like, if you want to run a validator, you need a lot of space. Um, the last time I, I ran a full node, which isn't like an archive node, so I don't have like all the history, you need like 300 gigabytes of storage, uh, which is, it is pretty annoying. Um, so the idea with this is that since we will be adding even more data than today, uh, we are like adding more to this problem. So the idea is that after some time, um, like validators are allowed to delete that data and that's something that is expected. It's not that something that we are doing to make people more happy. Um, the problem that we are trying to solve uh, coming to the roots is the data availability problem. So we want a way to people to post data on chain and know that that data will be available in a defined period of time. That's kind of the, 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 the problem that we are solving. We are not solving posting data forever. That's not the promise. And that's not needed for solving uh, this roll-up centric uh, roll-up. Uh, so I think it's a year, but I might be wrong and can be less or more, so. Yeah, for some reason, at first, when I read the spec, I thought that it will also be stored forever. It's just like not all the nodes will <laughs> store it. So I was like, okay, that's going to be interesting. Uh, all right, so another question that I have, I really don't know what's the answer to it, so maybe you know. Uh, as we introduce the additional type of transactions to post the data blobs, do you know if there are any implications on the MEV? which is minor extracted value with regards to new transaction type? I don't know. I'm not like a, I'm not a MEV expert, but I wouldn't expect that to be much relevant because I think that MEV is really um, like immediate kind of call to action thing about producing the next block. So, um, Probably like they they will be interested in that for maybe some maybe in rollups, um, but I don't know maybe not if like the rollup is already providing that data somewhere else. So I I don't think that maybe has much to do with that, but I can be wrong. <laughs> All right. Okay, so it's about 30 days left to of, of the ceremony, uh, to be a part of the ceremony. Uh, can you recommend the ways to participate and what is the best way to participate? Uh, is the browser extension enough or should we download the clients? And what are your stakes on that? <laughs> or should yeah. we use your, your client? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a time to advertise. <laughs> Yeah, so the first uh, thing is uh, try to trust anybody uh, as like a good mantra. Maybe this is like a good opportunity to explain why there are many clients and what can go wrong and like how you can help to solve that problem. So let's say that the only client is the official one, this web-based one that you can go to the ceremony.ethereum.org and everybody contributes to the ceremony using that. Okay, so what can go wrong? So even if you have 30,000 people participating that way, uh, let's say that uh, like this web-based client was built by two or three or four people, uh, I guess in the Ethereum Foundation and some external collaborators. And 
let's be honest, like nobody will, like most people of these 30,000 won't be reading the code or be double checking the implementation of the client. So let's say that one of those developers introduced some kind of backdoor in the code and it's not really destroying their secrets. It's like sending the secrets somewhere else. So now we have a big problem because even if like 30,000 people are contributing, in theory, generating the secret and in theory, deleting the secret, this secret is getting leaked. And if like this developer has these 30,000 secrets from everyone, it can reconstruct this tau number that wanted uh, not to be leaked. That's why, the, uh, apart from having a lot of contributors, uh, it is really important that you try to use as many clients that you can, um, because that mitigates some risks like this one of maybe the uh, some Ethereum developer that made this official client introduce something or made a mistake. It's just shouldn't be like intentional. Um, maybe there's a bug in the underlying cryptographic library. So many things can go wrong. So if you try to use other clients, you know, okay, there, there was like this other group of people that did their own implementation. It's really hard to really think of multiple teams colluding into making every client um, send your secret somewhere else. Um, so, and also like different clients are using different cryptographic libraries. So even if a cryptographic library has a bug, we know that other clients are using something else. Um, there can also be a problem if you get esoteric in your browser. So what if your browser has a bug and could be hacked or there's an extension in your browser that has access to the memory and can stall the secret? Well, now like everyone that is using the web-based client might be compromised. So that's why uh, you can use this other client. For example, my client is a CLI client. It's not web-based. Uh, so you run it in your terminal. Uh, so yeah, um, the, 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 man, the, the idea here is that the, the, I would encourage people to use as many different clients as possible. Uh, uh, I mean, first contribute to the ceremony. I think that's like the first thing, whatever client you want. But if you want to spend maybe an extra minute uh, just try to use some other client, could be my client, or I think there are some others out there. Uh, and that will, you will be helping um, to make everything uh, more safe because it's not about only how many people participate, but it's like the diversity of each contribution. So if you are doing your contribution from a really weird and not really used that client, you are probably contributing even more to security than just using the most used client. Um, but anyway, I mean, the web-based client, I think is really nice. It's uh, super uh, friendly and it was built by the Ethereum Foundation, which obviously has a lot of stake uh, in like the security of the network and there's like no good reason for them to do some hairy thing. So the main risk might be something like a bug or something like that. But yeah, the good part is that you only need one person from this 30,000 or 40,000 to do like the correct thing, whatever the client that they use. 
and that can be you so you have to trust anybody so if you do that yourself you will know that at least you are that person and the rest it doesn't matter what can be wrong if a trusted setup will be compromised what the worst case scenario will be in this case if some some attacker can generate like let's call it fake proof or proof using this DAO, this secret secret data DAO, DAO what uh, what this attacker can fake? Right. So if this DAO number is leaked, uh, as you said, what what this person can do is force proofs. So what that means is that he can do this hairy stuff about if I asking this person for the evaluation of the polynomial at some point, whatever, he can cheat and generate a proof that I will verify and that will be correct. So the implications of that is um, that it would break the dunk sharding design. <laughs> so what will happen is that uh, somebody can include a blob of data in a block and with this full dunk sharding setup in which people are doing sampling of this data and can convince everyone that apparently all the data is available, but actually I will destroy that data. So this result, an assumption that the data is available, is now false. Okay, so what is like a practical thing that can happen if, uh, in that scenario? So, um, okay, let's say that there is a roll-up that uh, is executing, executing batch of transactions and is posting a new state root of the rollup with, in theory, the blob containing the batch of transactions. So the assumption here, if we, if we remember, is that this batch of transactions was available for any, everyone to take and re-execute to double check that the new state root was correct. But now we have this problem about we cannot really assume that anymore. So that the data can be retrieved, and that means that nobody can re-execute. Um, no, nobody can do this state transition and check for the new state root. And now that means that nobody can claim that the rollup was honest or not. And that basically means that the rollup is security is broken, because if nobody can check that the optimistic rollup was um, executed correctly, then I'm just trusting the rollup that is doing the right thing. In the case of Siki uh, EVMs, that's a bit more subtle. So in zero knowledge EVMs, um, what these rollups are doing is that they are posting the data. Uh, I can explain a bit more some twists there. But they are posting, let's say, the batch of transactions, the new state root, and a proof that um, all the computation in the EVM for this batch of transactions was done correctly. Maybe you might think, okay, um, maybe this data availability problem wasn't that bad because the only thing that happens is that the layer one verifies this proof. And with this proof, we know that the rollup has calculated everything correctly. So it hasn't created Ethereum from thin air, let's say. 
So that's fine, but the problem with uh, CDVMs is that you need the data anyway to reconstruct the state of the rollup. So let's say that a CDVM is only posting the state root and the proof of the computation, and it's not sharing the transactions or anything else. The only thing that you can know is that the rollup is executing things correctly. So it's not really doing hairy stuff. But if you actually want to know, okay, so what is my balance in the rollup? Or do I still have this NFT in my wallet? Or something about the state? Um, you can't because uh, the only thing that you know is that the state of the, of the state of the rollup changed like in an expected way, but you don't know really what that state is. It's like similar to only having the root of the state, but not having the state, you don't know anything about like your balance or whatever without further proofs. So even in the zero knowledge EVMs, the data availability is important because that gives you a way to know about the state of the rollup. And um, yeah, that, that is useful to simply know about uh, things about the rollup or if you have to do some kind of forking of the rollup because something really bad happened and someone else wants to uh, fork it or move along, uh, you need the state to do that. Um, so in summary, yeah, you can fake, uh, um, you can cheat in the network, claiming that some data is available when it isn't, and that has some really deep implications for yeah, rollups in general. Uh, maybe somebody else, if it is using these block transactions for some arbitrary data, maybe some NFT image, who knows? Uh, maybe in that case, it isn't a big deal. Uh, but in the worst case scenario, yeah, it will be pretty bad. Uh, the attacker can steal money from the optimistic rollup and froze money in uh, ZK based rollup. Am I right? Yeah, that's a good summary, yeah. This is uh, one of the reasons why I f fan of the ZK rollup and work in ZK sync, not in Arbitrum. <laughs> Okay, so, so the last question will be, do you have a prediction how many people will participate to this procedure, to the uh, multi-party computation? How many unique contributors we will have in the end? And maybe if you will have like very big mistakes, uh, we will have a funny tweet that <laughs> your prediction is totally wrong, but if... If you will guess number, uh, like exact the same amount of participants, it will be funny. Wow, that's really complicated. Okay, so you make a, you use a very special word there, which is unique contributors. And that's a bit of uh, hand wavy, actually, because uh, the, the, anyone can contribute for, from multiple Ethereum addresses or your GitHub account. So there's like some um, uh, civil resistant measurements about you're going to really generate an Ethereum address today and you start to contribute. You, you needed some activity some time ago or something like that. So it's like pretty reasonable. But if you have multiple addresses, uh, you can do like three or four contributions uh, with each one. So unique contributions is a bit uh, hand wavy, but yeah. And uh, regarding the total, 
Well, I don't know. I would say I would really like to cross the 50,000 mark. I think that would be amazing. Um, but I will be a bit more conservative and I would say 42,000. <laughs> I think if, I, if I'm parsing this right, if you go to ceremony.ethereum.org, they have latest contributions, which has like number, participant ID and signatures. They have 40,000 already. Oh, so, yeah? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 50K is close to the moon. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Maybe I yeah. will change my number. Right. Please do. <laughs> I mean, you can approximate okay, ask me, now. Ask, so, ask me again, ask me again. <laughs> right. How, how many contributions will we have in 30 days? How do you think? Uh, yeah, I wasn't tracking uh, until some seconds ago the amount of contributions. But I would say that, yeah, 50,000 is a number. I would really like to cross that. Um, so, yeah, I would say like 50,000. Yeah, when I was submitting the contributions actually yesterday, I think I was in line along with 2,700 people. And I was like, I, I needed to stay, like, get my laptop staying overnight so it got into the sequencer. Uh, so yeah, I would assume that the, the number may rise closer to the end of it as well. So let's see. Yeah, and uh, like there's a, like a particular UX I, I wouldn't call it like problem, but this thing that you describe is maybe annoying for people because when you are waiting for doing your contribution, let's say that there are 1,000 people in the lobby, that's kind of the name that they use, uh, like this space where everyone is waiting to do the contribution. Yep. So the way that the sequencer was designed is that each time it can select the next person to contribute, it will take someone at random. So it's not really respecting the order in which you join. So that basically means that uh, if you join now, you have the same probability of being selected next as someone that maybe is waiting for the last two hours. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, you can expect really long waiting times or maybe not. Uh, so yeah, keep your tab open and simply wait. <laughs> yeah, or keep UCLI open and wait. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. All right, uh, I guess we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was really nice and comprehensible. Like, I, I didn't expect, to be honest. But it's, uh, really, if you want to know anything about the uh, trusted setup for Ethereum and the ceremony itself, like, I think this podcast kind of nails all the points, actually. So, yeah, thank you for that. This podcast was brought to you by two Ukrainians away from home. And if you ever would like to support our efforts, please uh, instead do support Ukraine in the effort to fight the Russia that is a terrorist state, clearly. And you can do so in fiat or crypto using the website savelive.in.ua slash n slash donate dash n slash. And yeah, uh, feel free to throw any crypto or fiat currencies and we would absolutely appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, please subscribe in YouTube and Apple Podcasts, Spotify and so on and so on. Thank you for tuning in. Please leave feedback and comments if you like this or not. We're actually working on making this podcast better and we would appreciate any sort of feedback that you give us because that will make us grow. 
Thank you so much. Bye.